warm welcome to Coach Dan Blewett. Yeah, I'm excited to be back. So I, I actually grew up in Baltimore and uh, lived the last nine years here in Illinois. And everything they say is true about the Midwest. It's, uh, it's extremely cold, very different than the, uh, than the East Coast, but also the people. I, I really appreciated the relationships I built. There's just a genuineness about all of you here in the Midwest. There's just like a level of sincerity and authenticity, just like I always felt welcomed into this part of the country. So it's always nice to be back. It's just a very warm culture here in the Midwest. <laughs> Figuratively, not literally, not literally. Um, so today I'm gonna talk about mental skills. And this is something that's very personal to me because I did have a very long sort of meandering baseball career. I was a walk-on in college, um, earned a little bit of scholarship money later on, sort of like a thanks for doing good here. Um, but I was sort of like always the underdog. And as I kept progressing and I did play six years of pro ball, I still maintained that sort of persona. And so for me, I had to sort of tap as much into myself as I could. And with a lot of, you know, as we climb the ladder, we're challenged in new ways. And we also have to find new ways to pull ourselves up to those levels. So this was me as a little guy. I have a little bit of a Harry Potter likeness with the glasses on. Um, got some corrective uh, surgery and, and grew up a little bit later. But I'd like to talk with a, or start with a story. So before we can talk about why we need mental training and what I think you should do for your players for mental training, we need to understand why do we even need it, right? It's becoming more and more prevalent. I think 10 years ago, you were just, level, or just labeled a head case if you needed any kind of mental skills training, performance training. But it's pretty mainstream now. Every major league team has their own mental skills coach, if not multiple. So this is something that's becoming more and more part of every day, which is great. But why do we need it? What does it actually do? So I want to tell you a quick story. And this was an event that shaped the rest of my life. When I was, uh, it was my second year in pro baseball. And I, was, I started the year with a, a team called the Lake County Fielders in Lake County, Illinois. And the team was doing well, I was the number four starter, and we financially collapsed about halfway through. So I had to find a new team, and I quickly got scooped up by the Fargo Moorhead Redhawks of the American Association. And they're a perennial winner, they really wanted me, which was new for me. I was always a walk-on, like, just give me a chance kind of guy, and suddenly they're like, hey, there's this, new, this pitcher who's doing well, let's scoop him up, like he's gonna jump right in a rotation. This was the first time that I had any expectations. People expected me to pitch well on this good team. And so I go up to Fargo, pitch poorly my first time out, pitch poorly my second time out. So now I'm on this new team, and I'm the kind of guy who I want to contribute before I start palling around and, and being one of the guys. I want to make sure that I, I contribute something to our ball club. I hadn't done that. So after my second start, I get pulled from the rotation. And I was going to pitch at this ballpark in Gary, Indiana. And I actually invite a lot of my clients and friends from here in Illinois to come watch me pitch. So right off the bat, I was embarrassed that I had to call them back and say, hey, I got yanked from the rotation. I'm not going to pitch on the night I told you I was. So I go to the bullpen. They put me in the bullpen. And most of the time, when a player is new to the bullpen, or new if you get called to the big leagues, they'll put you in a low pressure situation, right? Makes sense, kind of ease you in. But here we were in this ballpark on a Friday night, about 4,000 fans there. And it was the ninth inning, and it was like a six to six ball game. You know, I'm sitting there, I don't know how to be a reliever. I hadn't done it since I was a freshman in college six years earlier. But yet, they said, hey, if we tie it in the ninth, 
If we're, if we're still tied the ninth, Blewett's in the game. I said, oh, okay, uh, I'll do this warm-up thing, which I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. I'm used to being a starter, but I'll give it a shot. So I go in, I pitch a good ninth. One, two, three, like two strikeouts and a flyout, no big deal. Um, after that, my pitching coach kind of goes to bat for me. He says, hey, how you feel? Like, I want to send you back out. I'm going to tell our head coach, a guy named Simi, I'm going to tell him to send you back out. Do you want to go back out? I said, sure, yeah, like, that, was, that was fine. So I go back out, get an out, give up a hit, and after, I think, one or two outs, we've got the winning run on second base, and their best hitter's coming up. So mound visit, and our pitching coach comes out, and he says, hey, you know, you got a base open, so let's, you know, be careful, probably start, start him off with off speed. So we just settled on a changeup. I was going to start this left-handed hitter off on a changeup. Not my best pitch, but it definitely made sense for the situation. You know, he departs, I stay on the mound. Two or three pitches later, I hang a changeup, chest high. He hits it in the... In, just flaring down the left field line. I watch it, just like begging it, just please, just go foul, and it doesn't. It stays in. Uh, so now I've joined the team as I walk off the field, as they mob the guy at the home plate. Um, I've been in three games, and I've given our, given our team three losses. I'm 0-3, my ERA is like seven. So we stream up, it's a beautiful ballpark, we stream up to this big clubhouse, and we get there, this big, big open room, and I just sit down in my locker, and I just stare at the floor. I, I know only one guy on the team. You know, I'm like the new guy that can't get anyone out. And I just hoped that I would just like dissolve into that floor. That was my goal. And finally our manager and our pitching coach walk through. They slam the door of the coach's office, and our manager, this very cutthroat, like known to be harsh kind of guy, he his voice rings out a moment later. So I'm sitting there, we're all dead silent. We've lost like six straight. This game was not great. And from the paper thin walls, I hear him reaming my pitching coach out. And he goes, you said to send him back out. You said he was lights out, but he stinks. He effing stinks. I censored it, he did not censor it. Um, so that was me. Imagine yourself in this new place with all these new teammates that you're trying to impress and your coach, at the top of his lungs, screams that you stink. So I had never in my life wanted to quit baseball before that moment. I, I just tried to go shower, and I got a peanut butter and jelly, went and sat on the bus, and just counted down the minutes. It was like 45 minutes before that bus left. Longest 45 minutes of my life. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I don't know how I was going to get better. Um, and for the rest of that season, I was pretty broken up here. I didn't know how to pitch to that level. It was a higher level of baseball. I just continued to struggle, and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I had never faced confidence issues as a player, but here I was. I go out there, and I expect to walk guys. I expect to get hit. I expect to lose. And that's where you say, how did I get here? Three weeks earlier, my last game with the previous team, I threw a complete game. We won 4-1, to one, and there were four ex-major leaguers in the lineup. I hit 93 in the ninth inning. I was cruising, and then... A couple weeks later, I was broken. And so that is why we need mental skills training, because that was not the end of my story. That was a very big turning point for me as a human being, and I'm thankful for that story, as hard as it was, because it spurred me to make a lot of changes that I didn't previously know I needed. I didn't have that armor yet because I'd never been faced with something like that. And so these are the biggest problems I think that you're going to face with your players, whether they're 8 years old, 12 years old, 16 years old, there's a lot of bad luck in baseball. Baseball is a, 
It's an amazing sport, but it's also profoundly cruel because of how much luck is involved. It's not like football where you lay the guy out and he's just going to go down and the play is over. You can make a great pitch and lose a game, and I've, made, I've done that many, many times. Players crumble under pressure. Pitching especially is very, very difficult because you have this time gap, right, where you can sit there and think about all the bad things that might happen if you don't make your pitch. And then lastly, players give up. After they make a mistake, like after I got you know, embarrassed in that clubhouse, you're afraid to do it next time, right? Everyone here in this room has seen your shortstop boot a ground ball just to do what on the next one? Boot that one too, right? So these are the three problems that I hope that we can tackle today. I can give you a little bit of insight into how we can do this right from the get-go. Because especially as amateur coaches, this isn't like a big exercise-heavy age. They're not going to sit down and meditate like I learned to after that summer in Fargo. Your kids are going to still be kids and do all these other things. So it's a lot of different strategies for you to help, um, help your players understand what's expected of them, what the standard they're going to be held to if they want to be really good ball players, play in college, play professionally, um, and eventually become the men that you also want them to be. So I'm going to go through 10 things that I think you can really do to help your players and how you can do them. So number one, the biggest thing is routine. So I mentioned in my story that I didn't know how to be a reliever. I was a starter and I had my, everything I did mapped out, right? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, day one, day two, day three, day four. Routine is something that it's undertaught and it's hard to understand exactly what does a kid need to do. But when I went and, you know, I owned a baseball academy for a long time. When I would go to these tournaments, I would see players on the other team they're starting pitchers ready and sitting in the dugout 20 minutes for his game. So he's just getting cold. And my guys, this was just me helping share some of my years of experience, said, no, when do you want to be in the dugout? They say, I don't know. I said, well, let's shoot for five minutes for the game. So if you're going to be in the dugout at 12.55 for a 1 p.m. game, how long do you need to throw? How much, how much in the bullpen do you like? 10 minutes? Okay. Well, then how much do you want to throw in the outfield? 10 minutes? Okay. How far do you want to go out? Eh, like 200 feet. Okay. How much do you want to warm up before that? Like getting your body loose, doing some sprints, some calisthenics, stuff like that. So we start to backtrack it. We make the stepping stones from 12.55 to all, you know, if it's 42 minutes, then it's, let me do this mental math here, um, 12.13. So at 12.13, your routine starts. So at 12.55, you've done everything you need to do to be as ready as you can be for the game. And that's not a complex thing. It just takes sitting down with your players. And I like worksheets for this. I would make my guys at least twice a year write down their routine to the minute. So at 12.42, what are you doing? You're doing this for four minutes? OK, what's a 12.46? OK, what's a 12.51? OK. There's a lot of repetition that's needed for them to really have this sink in. I've had a lot of kids that they play for me a couple of years, and then in high school ball, they still like, uh, don't know what their routine is. It's going to take time, so I would really encourage you to use worksheets and try to just track down what they think makes them successful and then try to piece it together, whether it's pregame or whether it's their side session, whatever it is, and just try to help them form a routine. Because routines, they remove variables from the equation. If you pitch great and you warm up for 30 minutes or you pitch bad and you warm up for 70 minutes, you're going to know there's something different, but you're not going to know what. And this is going to help smooth that out. Number two, don't let them crumple. And what I mean by this is I, I don't see many coaches doing mound visits before 
things get really ugly. And I probably led 15U baseball last year in mound visits when there wasn't anything apparently wrong. But when I see bad body language, I see a pitcher sort of ease off a pitch, those are really bad signs for me that something up here is going on and he's trying to control the game because he's thinking a lot and he's scared. So what I mean by crumple is this. When a pitcher's going good, everyone can see the body language is strong, right? The shoulders are back, they're moving quick, they're not thinking too much. But as soon as that pitcher walks a guy or gives up a hit, you start to see this. They turtle, their head gets like a turtle, right? Their shoulders start to round, their movements become a little slower, and you start to see them become a little less aggressive when they, the way they release a pitch. Now, this can happen in hitting as well, obviously. You can see it in fielding. You know, they, they boot a ground ball and they, you know, they go down. But with pitching, I try to intervene as quickly as I can because if, I, if they're going here, they don't need me. If they're getting here and they're starting to get nervous, that's when I need to go and try to pull their shoulders back, figuratively, and get them just to relax and do your thing and things are going fine. Try to intervene before it gets bad because what happens is this, another walk and another hit, and suddenly your guys are mentally doing this and you're not gonna get them back. You're not gonna bring them back that game. The floodgates are gonna open and it's pretty much over for the game. And that sixth spot that happens in that inning, you're not gonna be able to come back from, right? So watch really, really hard and don't be afraid to use mound visits, especially with pitching. And again, this is, you're not gonna go out and talk to your shortstop, but this is an in-game intervention you see any kind of body, body language that looks negative or they start to ease off a pitch and don't really finish it, that's when you need to go out there and talk to these guys. No, there's no delay of game, it's not a big deal, and just give guys a breather too, okay? So don't be afraid to try to pick them up before things get rough. Number three, this is another thing that I think is important with worksheets because players are not gonna wanna offer up this information super readily, but we all have fears. I'll share mine. When I, was a, when I was a sophomore in college, I made big strides my freshman year. My sophomore year, I was slated to be the number four slash number five pitcher. So I had one guy to beat out to be in the rotation. My first time out, I was piggybacking with a guy who eventually pitched in the major leagues, a teammate of mine, good friend, and he, that meant he was gonna pitch the first four or five and I was gonna pitch the last four or five. So we're gonna split the game. I went out there, I, I came in and like with two outs, I think in the fifth, and it was kind of rough, but I got the last out. The next inning, it was like walk, walk, hit, walk, and I was yanked. It was bad, it was ugly. This was like my first real chance as a college baseball player. I got like 20 innings as a freshman, just like an inning here, inning there. This is my first chance to really like establish myself. I was gonna get four innings, Division I baseball against William & Mary, and I just really, I mean, to put my name in vain, I blew it, it was bad. And so, for the rest of my career, till the very last game I pitched at age 30, I was in the bullpen, ready to go in the game, and I was scared that I was gonna walk three hitters in a row. It never, ever left me. So, I wrote that down, I'm not, this is a real worksheet, um, just by trying to be candid with players. So if you're a coach and you play, it doesn't matter what level you played at, you can share something that you, that you went through. That's gonna help them open up. But everyone has these, and you might not know what they are, and they're often very irrational. I never did that again. I had pretty good control. I had good control before that day, I had good control after that day. My control was better some years than others. But I was not a go in and walk four guys kind of dude, I wasn't. And so that was just a genuinely irrational fear. If you're like, okay, well Dan, why would you, why do you think you would walk you know, three hitters in a row? 
You did that literally one time in 20 years. Yeah, exactly. And when you see it on paper, sometimes you realize the absurdity of it and kids can let that go. Number four, I think kids are softer than they ever have been. I don't know that anyone specifically is to blame for this, but I know parents get in the ears of coaches more than ever. It makes it hard for you guys to do your job. And I'm sorry for that. I face it as well. Um, but I don't think we should let ourselves off the gas as far as being disciplinarians and being hard on them in a way that's encouraging good work ethic, good behavior, being a good teammate, and upholding a standard that we hold them to. So there's a lot of coaches that are just mean. They just, they'll embarrass kids, and that's not what I'm talking about. But in college for me, one of my biggest mentors as a, like I was 19 in college, I didn't know what division, baseball, division one baseball was. And this is a very normal thing. Like you don't know what varsity baseball is until you've like gotten your feet wet in it, right? I didn't know what it meant to be a Division I baseball player. I knew that I was just a walk-on. I knew that I wasn't really that good. I was like the worst player my freshman year. But I wanted to be good, and I needed someone to show me that. So I became a gym rat, and I talked to my strength coach, uh, Coach Cantor, and I basically said, hey, can you give me more workouts to do? Can you give me, tell me what I should eat so that when I work out, I'll get stronger faster? Like, what can I do? And he gave me all this stuff, and... I didn't know this at the time, but he also decided that he was going to single me out. He, he must have made this conscious choice. But my first year, I was kind of clumsy. I wasn't like the most athletic guy. And every time we're running agility drills, every time we're doing sprints, every day in the weight room, I hear my name, blow it, get it, like, get it right. Every day I heard that. I'm like, okay. Um, didn't think much of it, but even as I grew a couple years later, I'm leading the pack in our sprint agility drills. I'm leading the pack in our suicides. You know, we're running back and forth on the basketball court eight times in a row. And I'm like a, a length ahead of everyone else. You know, my dad was a champion runner. I have like good blood, I guess. But um, a couple years later, I was a physical specimen and I'm leading in everything. I still hear my name. Blow it, it's not a jog, it's a sprint. It's like I'm in front of everybody by like, I don't even know who's behind me. I'm like lapping people. It's not a, it's not a jog, it's a sprint. So he was hard on me till the very, very end. And it wasn't because I wasn't outworking other guys, it was because if he saw me take my foot off the gas, knowing my goals, he was gonna let me know about it. And he didn't wanna see me ease off just because I was ahead of someone on my team because someone else, somewhere else, was gonna be working as hard or harder than I was who was already more athletic and a better player than I was. He held me to an extremely hard, high standard and was hard on me till the end but it was for my own good, it was never destructive, it was always to keep me going at my best. So I'd encourage you to reinforce good work ethic, being a good teammate, showing good body language, keeping your head up, that stuff, be tough on them. And if parents don't like it, they don't like it, it doesn't matter, but be tough on them because 10 years down the road, five years down the road, they're gonna thank you for it. Number five, thinking in percentages. This is really important because I'm sure, how many of you here have a player on your team who, when they get out, they're just like inconsolable? I'm sure a lot of you do. They crush a ball, they hit a missile, guy catches it, and they just, they throw a fit, they can't, like, and it's like, dude, you hit the ball really hard, like, you should be happy. They, they never are, right? Baseball is profoundly terrible in the luck that you have. You will hit line drives that are caught, 
One, I mean, I can't imagine how many times, if I were to tally them up, how many times I was in trouble. Three and one, two and oh, I pipe a fastball, it's like, oh God. And they hit a one hopper to my shortstop, double play, the inning's over. There's good luck and bad luck both directions. And so when you think about your outcomes as percentages, a lot like poker or any other kind of a game of chance, it gives you perspective on what's actually going on. And I learned later in my career that when I make a really good pitch, there is never a certain outcome. If I make a really good pitch on the black of the plate, I'm gonna get an out 85% of the time. 15% of the time, they're gonna hit a 19 hop ground ball that sneaks through. And some of the time, there's gonna be the winning run on third when that little 19 hopper squeaks through and I lose the game. But 85% of the time, which is a number I just made up, but it's probably accurate, I'm gonna get the result that I want, right? And so when you think of it that way, and this is just completely backed up by all the new sabermetrics, that we know that when you barrel the ball up, it just goes through the infield faster, right? And there's just way higher, higher percentage of getting a hit. So when you help stress to your kids, like look, it's never certain, but when you hit the ball hard, you're gonna have a 50% chance or a 60% chance of getting on base, of, of getting a hit. And even when you make a great pitch, you're, it's never gonna be certain you might have a 20% chance or a 30% chance of getting the result that you want. So helping them understand how much bad luck is involved in baseball can sometimes click with them and be a good way to help them understand that they can only do their best and stay within themselves. Number six, um, I did this in 2012. It's weird that when we are nervous, we only consider the negative things people are saying about us. It's just like doubts and fears and all that streaming into our brains. But you know those Muppet guys, those two old dudes who are like in the pulpit, maybe they're here now, I can't see them. But those two old dudes are just like chirping. Um, I imagine like some old guys in the bleachers when I was getting ready for my starts in 2012. I imagine them looking at the, you know, the team program and talking about me. Like, oh, this blue guy. He's pit oh man, he's been pitching great. This other team, they're, they're, they're done. Like he's gonna probably shut them out. We always think about the opposite, right? We always think, oh man, like look at those guys. They're big and strong, like, oh, I'm not gonna do well. Or people are, I don't know, we get in our own heads as athletes, but what if you sat your players down and talked to them and say, hey, when you're nervous or you're about to go up to the bat and it's you know, tying runs on second base, what if you just like imagine some of the parents in the stands like, oh man, I'm so excited that Dan's coming up. He's been hitting the ball really, really well. He's really focused. Like, I think he's our guy. Have them just play these little visualizations out in their head. Just, and maybe one kid, if you have them all sit down and you have a little meeting about this, maybe one kid does that. Maybe that makes a huge difference in his career. So with a lot of this stuff, you're kind of throwing things off the wall. But one thing might click with me. Another might click with you. Another might click with you. But I used that, and I thought it was great. I, I like, got me in, my, in a strong mindset, and I imagined random people in the stands talking me up, and just genu and a, lot, a lot of it was true. And if it wasn't true, I just made it up. So you, know, you can work it any way you want. But we can imagine positive voices in the crowd. Number seven, um, think in chunks. So this was something that I learned probably my 2010, my rookie season. I, uh, I pitched really, I pitched okay my first start, and then my second start, I got hit around really early. I gave like four or five runs in like an inning or two. And then I had, to st I had to keep my team in the game. Like I need to give them at least five innings. And so at that point, you're starting to think about your ERA. I'm like, oh man, I've already given up four runs. My ERA is bad. If I have a bad start next time, I might get released, because that's like three in a row, my ERA is like six. You start thinking about that stuff, it gets really bad. 
But then you're like, oh man, I gave up four runs in the first or second. Now I got to go five total. If I'm going to have a decent day, I need to go five scoreless or four scoreless. That's a really hard task, right? If you try to put the pressure on yourself to go seven innings, two runs every time out, you're going to feel very hopeless because that's a hard thing to do. So that day I learned, I'm like, I got to keep my team in the game. I'm like, okay, let's just go one inning at a time. And then you can do better than that. You can go one hitter at a time. And then you can do better than that still, which is go one pitch at a time. And so ultimately, when players are doing well, whether they're at the batter's box, whether they're in the infield or they're pitching, if they take it one single pitch at a time, the game becomes very manageable and controllable. I can make one good pitch. And then it restarts. I can make one good pitch. I can make one good pitch. And then before you realize it, you've pitched 95 good pitches, you've gone seven strong innings, and your team wins three to one. That's how baseball works. So when your kids, when you think they put too much pressure on themselves, this is a conversation just to have over and over, just to remind them. Your job's not to get a hit. Your job's not to throw seven strong innings. Your job is not to make all the plays today. Your job is to just feel this one ground ball that gets hit to you. Your job is to take one pitch, see it well, put a good swing on it, right? This is the process versus outcome kind of stuff. But explain to them that they need to break the game up into its atoms. Each pitch is basically the, the, at the atomic level of baseball. Number eight, so we're getting down to the wire here. A reset action is important, and there's lots of different terms for this, but for me, I learned to meditate after that really tough day in Fargo, uh, North Dakota. And for me, meditation, I would sit and I'd, I'd be relaxed and I'd learn to visualize, but I would also be belly breathing. So stomach going out and in like a food baby. Um, and so that relaxed state where I was belly breathing, that became my reset action in a game. So if I'm out there and I'm stressed, I just walked a guy, gave a double, it's second and third, it's a close game, and I'm starting to feel nervous, I try to not just take a breath, in general, I try to take a belly breath. Because that put me back into like this little calm, tranquil kind of state of mind that I was in when I was meditating. So it could be anything. So I did a lot of weird stuff throughout my career. Uh, for a little while when I was trying to come back from uh, Tommy John surgery, I decided that I was going to smile before each inning. So I would like go kind of like do my thing and I'd be walking around the mound and I'd like look into the outfield and I would like smile because there's research that says when people smile, even when they're unhappy, it like forces your body to feel a little happier. So I was trying to like cut some of the nervousness by doing that. Um, other times when I felt nervous, kind of when I felt like it was a, uh, a fight or flight situation, again, like bases loaded, no one out, that's a big fight or flight situation. If you flee mentally, you eventually are crumpled up on the ground. But if you say, I'm gonna fight, then you have a standing chance to get out of this. And so what I would do when I felt a little bit of nervousness, I would, I would pull really hard breaths up my nose because it makes me feel angry. And when I feel a little angry, or maybe I clench a fist, I do kind of innocuously, those little things can help snap you out of this like sad mindset. And so those are just little tips to give to a player. It could just be like a, like a thigh slap, it could be something innocuous, maybe you just like poke yourself or you, it doesn't matter, but something to, to just like, hey, wake up, right? So something like this, it could be different for every athlete, you wanna encourage them to, to find it, but these things are really important to get you back on track. Number nine, I wanna bring this up because it's sometimes a really big morale killer for a team and 
nepotism's everywhere. It's even in the higher levels of government now. But nepotism is something that hurts not only your own kid if you're a, a head coach of a team and your son plays on it, but it also hurts all the other players, and it doesn't have any of the intended result. So I would encourage all of you, if you have a team, on the, a player on the team, or if you're just a mom or a dad, and you're trying to figure out, does my son deserve more playing time? Should he be playing shortstop? Should he be a starting pitcher? Where does he fit into this team dynamic? Be a really critical evaluator of your own kids. And some of this comes back to the, the level of baseball you played at. Um, I'll tell you right now, I'm incompetent at evaluating talent at basketball, football, badminton, tennis, gymnastics, like any other sport. Like I'm not really, I, I'm not qualified at all to be a judge of talent because I didn't play those sports. And so sometimes this can be really hard to say like, no, you don't, you're not good enough to play shortstop. I know you want to, you know, this is a, a conversation at home. It's a tough conversation, but you're going to play second base until you get better. And it can be really difficult to deal with this on the other side where you're a parent and you know that your son should be playing position over another kid, but his dad's a coach or his mom's a coach. This is a big morale killer. In the end, players are going to be tested like I was in Fargo, mentally and physically. And if they feel like they just handed things they didn't earn when they're young, they're not going to be able to stand up to that stuff. They're not going to handle college baseball where it's very put up numbers or sit the bench. All the college coaches here will attest to that. Baseball is extremely cutthroat. It's extremely difficult mentally. And there's a lot of stuff that you will earn and not get. Again, like making good pitches and guys hit game-winning bloopers in. That's not fair, but it's part of the game. So be a very critical evaluator and be very careful about nepotism. If you're an assistant coach and you think your head coach is engaging in that, have that hard conversation. Even if they don't like it, they're still going to hear it. Maybe something changes. But this is a really big morale killer for, for uh, a team. And lastly, this is a really big one because at the end of the day, one of the core reasons I became maybe not the player that I wanted to be, because I wanted to be a major leaguer and I didn't, but I progressed every year because I always blamed myself. Not in a critical way, but in a constructive way. I never said, you know, that umpire really screwed me over because anytime he calls a borderline pitch a ball that should have been a strike, I could have executed better. I could have made that pitch two inches inside. I shouldn't have missed my spot so much, right? There's always something you could do better as a player. And culturally, the car ride home is very critical. So as coaches, talking to your parents, helping them understand that they need to drive this point home that, no, that umpire didn't screw our team over. We lost. The umpire is like, a factor in a game. And whether it's objectively true or not, we should not be blaming umpires, field conditions, any of that stuff. They're small parts of the game, and they're just accepted parts of the game. So establish a culture where you're not blaming anything and you're not letting other parents or players blame any external factor. You could always do better. You could have pushed across a run earlier. You could have made a play that you didn't make. You could have flagged down a blooper. There's always things you could do. We could have worked harder as a coach. I should have prepped you guys better. I should have done extra bullpens midweek. I should have uh, communicated better. There's always something your team could have done to pull out a win that was narrowly lost. So I think if there's anything that's important that's going to help build your kids into excellent young men when they're older, it's taking accountability now. That's going to drive their work ethic. It's going to help them be intrinsically motivated. And it's just going to help them appreciate what they do earn. So make it a policy to never blame any external factor for a loss. So lastly, teaching these skills can be, it can be difficult. 
I think a combination of worksheets, which you can easily make up in a, it doesn't have to be complicated, just a couple questions on a Word document, print it out, make them fill it out, use complete sentences. Five to 10 minute talks, just little short ones, is really important just to help reinforce these concepts. Um, don't let them crumple in the game. So be really, be as good of a body language inspector as you can be. There's some really good books out there. There's a book called uh, What Every Body Is Thinking. It's a great body language book by a F former FBI um, analyst or negotiator, I don't know what he was, but really excellent book that I liked a lot. We'll look really hard and be generous in your mound visits. If you feel like something's going wrong, just go out. There's nothing hurt, right? Lastly, never relax on the standard that you hold for people. And when people say, you're singling me out, it's, it seems like a dirty word these days. Parents don't want their kids singled out. My coach in college singled me out. He held me to a higher standard than other players, and I was thankful for it. So your standard can't always be the same. For the team, like showing up on time, working hard, all those things can be consistent throughout your team. But individually, for different players, if you know that I am super driven to be a pro baseball player, you're going to have a different standard for me than a player who plays three sports. And I, of course, I could play three sports too, but he just like, likes to play all three of them and is kind of like a recreational player. It's okay to have different standards as long as you're pushing them to be the best version of themselves meeting all those standards. But if you let things go when a player doesn't do his routine as well as he should or goes through the motions, that's gonna have a long-term negative effect on the team, on that player, and their character development, not just as a ball player, but as a person. So never relax on the standard. Decide what it is, whether it's hustle, whatever it is, conduct, your standard for any of those things needs to be enforced rigorously. So this is a, this is a, it's a beloved saying in pro baseball. If you don't like it, play better. And so something that I always lived by, a lot of my peers live by, you can always complain that, oh, this guy got a promotion, I had better numbers, I should have got promoted. He got a bigger draft bonus than I did. Like, I deserved you know, more money than him. If you don't like it, then just, just put up better numbers. Like, if you want to make it to the big leagues, just have a better ERA than everybody. You know, if you want to have a four ERA and you're upset that this guy with a five ERA got promoted, have a two ERA, make it not even close, right? So this goes back to not blaming external factors. But everything can be explained by if you don't like it, do better. Goes for work, goes for your relationships, if you're struggling you know, with your husband or wife, communicate better, take better care of them, whatever it is. Go to the gym, feel healthier, I don't know. There's all these things in life. If you don't like it, find a way to improve on it, do better. So this is a good motto for your team. It's a good thing for kids to start to understand. If they don't like the results of the game, if they don't like where they're batting in the lineup, if they don't like where they're playing on the field, how much work are you putting in? Okay, well put in some more. If you don't like it, play a little better. If you're not playing as well as you want, practice better. So if you want uh, a free worksheet, you can download it at this website. You can take this down. This will put you on my email list. I send out my new videos, all sort of helpful stuff each week. Um, but if you want one of these uh, routines just to check out and fill out, you're welcome to distribute to your team. No big deal. Um, I do have a mental skills course, but this is just a free worksheet. So if you want it, um, be sure to take down that URL. Also, all my materials are out there on the field, or uh, in the lobby. So. Thank you, I really enjoyed it, glad to be back. Appreciate your attention. So once again, we're fortunate we were ahead of time, so we um, I spend more time on pitchers because they have such a big time gap. Obviously, like, 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, let me clarify. So do I have anything more specific that I always do with pitchers yeah. mentally? Um, so I, I've created like a, a, a winter course for all my players, but it's much more rigorous for the pitching staff because they've got a lot more duties between plays. They have a longer time gap between plays. They have, you know, understanding their own repertoire, all this different stuff. So for me, it's just, I think you need to stay on your pitchers more as far as giving them a routine, giving them other people to listen to, whether that's, I know you guys probably know of the pitching ninja guy, Rob Freeman, he's a coach down in Georgia. Um, he's the big Twitter guy with all the gifts, but he does a great job with finding quotes from major leaguers and just giving them to their players because you never know what's gonna click. So I think just giving your pitchers a constant stream of stuff, I don't have anything like super specific, but they just deserve a lot more, not deserve, but they just need a lot more attention. And just having some sort of plan to progress them through what's your routine, um, what's your strength training look like? What, how do you mesh all this together? Um, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? The big thing with pitchers is helping them understand their repertoire, what they can and cannot do. And with mental skills, it's sometimes tough to figure out what, what qualifies as mental skills. But for me, it's all the stuff that's not physically throwing a ball or hitting a ball or fielding a ball. So with pitchers, one of the biggest things I learned as a player was who I was as a player. And that seems really like easy, like a quick answer, but it wasn't. I didn't figure out until I was like 28 in like the twilight of my career that I was a guy that had like a high spin fastball, that if I pitched down away, I got killed, that if I wasn't ultra aggressive, I just couldn't succeed. If I had known a lot of that stuff in college, I would have done a lot better a lot earlier in my life. And so things like that where you're helping them explore who they are as a player and just trying to figure out because I ask all my pitchers these questions. I'm like, how do you get out? What pitch do you throw when you're ahead in the count? What do you do when your slider's not there and you only have your fastball and your changeup? Where do you feel like you can execute? If you had to execute one fastball for a million dollars, what side of the plate would you pick? Are you better arm side or are you better glove side? Because everyone's better a little bit on one side. I was a better arm side pitcher. I could pitch into righties all day. It, it was a struggle for me to get into a lefty. So figuring out those strengths and weaknesses is really, really important. And I think the more you can just Ask, question, ask players questions and force them to write out answers, especially that's kind of why I said complete sentences. Make a worksheet, give them five questions a week and say, what are you good at? Where can you locate your fastball best? What would you throw if you don't have your changeup today and you only have a fastball and curveball? What would you, how would you change your pitch mix? Make them have answers to these questions. Because my big thing with pitch selection is I always, and I know a lot of coaches call pitches for their players and I personally strongly disagree with that, but a lot of it is having a good reason for every single thing that you do. And as a pro player, I had a reason for literally everything that I did. Everything on start day, everything in the weight room, everything in pregame, ev literally everything I did. So that goes down to why did you throw that one, why did you throw pitch number 47, the third pitch of the bat to the seven hole hitter in the third inning? Why did you go into him with a fastball? Well, I just want to mix it up. Like that's not an okay answer to me. Well, it's the, the correct answer is well, the guy on deck took me deep. Um, this guy is kind of a slow bat. The previous at bat, I struck him out on a fastball, um, but he seemed like he was cheating, so I wanted to kind of like really get it in for him or get it in on him so that he couldn't pull me foul, and then I was gonna beat him with a curveball later potentially. If, you know, there's always a lot more to it than people realize. And so for me, players are gonna learn that over time, but when they are forced to have answers early for the stuff that they do, what did you do to warm up today? When I watched you, you know, warming up in the outfield before you start for 30 minutes, what did you do? 
oh, I did a little of this. Why did you do every, all those things? Well, I just need to like, get some blood flow. Like, no, no, no. I want to know every drill you're going to do. I want to know every distance you're going to throw it. I want to know how many chain-ups you're going to throw and when you're going to throw them and from what distance and what, what intensity. Those are things that over time you don't have to write down or think about. But when you're young, you have no idea. So when you're forced to write them down, you're going to really have to think about why you do everything that you do. And once you know everything that you do, then you can start to refine it. You say, well, you throw 65 pitches before a start. That's probably too many. What if we take out these 10 and these 10 and you don't throw enough change-ups? Let's take out these 10 curveballs and add five change-ups and five more inside-outside fastballs. How do, how do you think that works? Okay, now you're throwing 45 pitches before a game, so let's see how that works for a little while. And then they throw really well or they don't throw well, but you have to give it some time. So it's always this fact-finding mission with players to figure out what, what works best for them. And the more you can be back and forth and give them activities to explore who they are and why they do the things that they do, um, I know this is a tan tangential answer, but that's a really, really important part of being your best player. And you'll see this with hitters too, you see little guys, and God bless Jose Altuve. He's incredible for how small he is. But most players who are his size can't do what he does. If you try to, you know, it, it's a blessing and a curse, him and like Dustin Pedroia, where they make five foot seven guys feel like they can be home run hitters. But most five foot seven guys, and you guys know this, if, you, if those players go out there and try to hit home runs, what happens? They fly out, right? And they're never on base. And they get cut. And they get released. I've seen it with pro guys. So... Again, trying to figure out what can you do. If you're Jose Altuve, maybe you can hit 30 home runs. But if you're literally every other five foot six second baseman, you need to focus on hitting line drives over the infield and being an excellent defender and being a tear on the base paths. And if you feel like you can yoke a ball into the gap here and there because you have a 2-0 count, so be it. But for the most part, Jose Altuve is not normal. And he figured out what he could and couldn't do because he can square the ball up well. So that kind of thing is really important. You have players who are physically better than they should, than they are, because they mentally take themselves out of games because they struggle, they, you know, they make mistakes, they get too nervous, or they're just being the wrong person. You get a little guy trying to be Adam or Aaron Judge, and that doesn't work, right? So helping these players understand who they are is really critical, and that's the more of these activities you can do to help them find that, the better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, good question. So his question was, what are some, some wisdom that I received during my playing days when I was a pitcher and I was struggling on the mound? Well, it came back to one pitching coach uh, my first year. He knew that I was at my best when I was really aggressive. And when he saw me sort of let off the gas, he would come in and be like, what can this guy hit? You can't hit your fastball, so you better throw that, 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 that thing hard. You know, you use different, more explicit terms, but like, you better throw that thing hard. You better go in on this guy because he can hit you if you go away, and he can hit you if, you if you go soft. But you go in on this guy or you be aggressive, like, they can't get you. So he would just push the button and try to get me to be aggressive again because I was my best self when I was aggressive. Um, but a lot of pitching coaches, and my mom always asked me these questions. She's like, what did your pitching coach tell you? A lot of times it's honestly just giving them a breather and reminding them of the situation. And when you do that stuff, it snaps them out because they have to think. So a lot of times I'll just go out and be like, hey, let's remember here, we got a runner on second and we have a base open. So what does that mean? Yeah, you could start this guy off with a changeup or a curveball with less risk, right? Because if you accidentally walk him, which we don't want to, 
it's still the double, we, we put the double play in order or whatever, right? And so when you start talking them through that stuff, now they're thinking again and they're not thinking about consequences. So, and a lot of times I'll just go out and give guys a breather. I'll be like, hey, I think you're doing fine. Just, you know, it's been a kind of a long inning. Um, you know, what are you eating for lunch? Or are you eating Chick-fil-A after this or what? But honestly, I just, there's excessive mound visits, but I don't think anyone in this room probably does that. I mean, I, I can't count how many times a pitcher's out there for a seven-run inning or a 45-pitch inning. And I'm like, where's the coach? Like, he was struggling 30, 35 pitches ago. And you could see his body language was ter terrible 50 pitches ago. And, but don't be afraid to just sort of go out there, give them a breather, um, maybe even make them laugh, talk about the situation, and just get them to be out of this, I'm ruminating and I'm thinking about things that could happen or are happening or I'm struggling, or I don't really know where the ball's going. The mechanical adjustments I give players are very small when I go out there, because they can't think about that either. It's usually just like, hey, get your shoulder up a little bit, you know, go uphill a little bit, it's little stuff. But really it's just mental stuff, trying to like build them back up. And the more you know your players and you know what they're good at, and you can go out and remind them, like, hey, man, that changeup is, like, nasty today. Go to that pitch. Or you're doing really well, like, locating fastballs in. Like, go to that. Just giving them something that they can, like, grab hold of. Because they might not be able to locate away. They might not be able to locate up. They might, their chain might stink. But if you can point out, man, this pitch in this location looks good, maybe that's like, okay. I, then they feel like they have one weapon they can pick up and, and like, fight with.